Niles Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for encouraging us with the presence of each other uh, in this moment in time, Father. We're so grateful for this opportunity. May we never become familiar with the simple things in life, Father. Thank you for this building. Thank you for the spiritual gifts that maintain it, Father. Thank you for the grace and blessings of these messages. We're just so grateful, Father, and we know that it's the truth that sets us free, and we thank you for that freedom. We do pray for those in the congregation, Father, that can't be with us this evening, that earnestly desire to be here, but for a variety of reasons, can't be sickness, uh, other reasons, Father. We just pray that they know that we're with them in spirit and that we'd like to have them back here in the fold with us. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a, an evening like this a wonderful time to rejoice in. And we do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. How's that, A.C. Scott? Is that? It's on low. It's on low? All right. Okay, good. Uh, Proverbs 17, uh, Wisdom, Part 5. Let's begin with some wisdom. Go to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. So we'll begin with some wisdom. I'm loving the way that the Spirit's going to open this evening's message up. I think you will, too. Uh, I love it when he gives us broadly sweeping sort of um, wisdom to start with. It just situates us just the right way for um, messages that include wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Solomon wrote this. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a good question, isn't it? Don't you ever ask yourself that? Where is this all going? Man, I'm working my butt off. Where is this going? This is hard work. Even life itself, in some ways, is difficult. By the way, does that sound familiar up here on the board? How about Jesus' words? Matthew 16, 26 up here on the board. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, Ecclesiastes 1.3, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Sound familiar? does to me. What shall a man give in return for his soul? You're going to give your life over to the world for what? What is it that you think you're going to gain that's superior to what God can give you? All that toil, all 
that work, all that energy put into things of the world, what is it that you think you're going to gain? Again, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, you should feel really small. <laughs> when you think in human terms, you should feel small and insignificant because that's what you are in human terms. I think so much of the wisdom books in the Bible give us this kind of big picture perspective. They are broad sweeping summarizations on life itself. Remember the Spirit has drilled into our heads that life has context. I mean, Solomon just gave that to us, right? I mean, what does it profit a man if he forfeits his, whole, his, his soul? What is all this toil about after all? I mean, I'm working right now. Most of you work today, whether it's for money or not isn't the issue. Most of you did something, some kind of labor. What good is that if, the, if you don't understand the context of it? It seems vapid, doesn't it? It almost feels like, geez, I don't know. I just feel like I've got no purpose here. So the Bible teaches us that life has context. In fact, everything has context which is especially important when we read the Word of God. Everything has context, which is especially important when we read the Word of God. For example, when we read the words of Solomon, we must always remember that he's not just some regular Joe. And I don't mean to disparage, or, you know, uh, yeah, disparage anybody who just sort of considers himself a regular Joe. But he's not just some regular Joe standing on the street corner spouting off, you know, invented wisdom. He's not that guy who just likes to hear them tell themselves speak, in other words. Solomon was the richest, wisest, probably the most powerful man in his time, which means that his words, and we just read them in Ecclesiastes, his words are those of personal experience. As I've taught you in the past, the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a compilation of human experiments that really put God's word to the test. That's kind of what he did, right? He said, let me tell you what, let me show you, let me reveal to you, let me share with you these experiments that I performed where I put God to the test, which is tantamount to saying I put the word to the test. Here's the gist of Solomon's findings up here on the board in terms of wisdom, if you're not with God, you're against Him. That's something we need to drill into our souls as well. If you're not with Him, you're against Him. Matthew 12, 30. There is no neutrality. So if you're here this evening, you're like, eh, maybe I'll take Him, maybe I won't. You know, I'm undecided, this kind of a thing. I don't know, maybe I, maybe I like you know, God, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm into Jesus, maybe I'm not then you're against him. Because you're either for him or against him. There's no neutrality. Do you understand? There's no neutrality. You're either for him or against him. We'll see that in a moment. Now, if you're against him, your life is vapid, your purpose is fleeting, and your faith and hope is in vain. Just like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, all is vanity. That's wisdom. Uh, let's see that first reference, though. Go to Matthew 12, verse 30. Matthew 12, 30. 
If you're not with God, you're against Him. Okay? I didn't say that. The Word of God says that. Matthew 12, verse 30. What does it say? It says, whoever is not with me is against me. Any questions? That's it. You're either with them or you're against them. There's no middle ground. You don't get to stand over there and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not against you. Oh, yes, you are. You're either with me or you're against me. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. You don't get to play that disgusting game that most so-called Christians play nowadays, that middle ground. Well, I'm not really with Jesus, but I'm not against him either. So maybe I can still, you know, maybe St. Peter will open up the pearly gates when I die. doesn't work like that. You're either with him or you're against him. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, up here on the board, if you're not with God, you're against him. We just read that, Matthew 12, 30. There is no neutrality, no, no middle ground here. If you're against him, your life is vapid, your purpose is fleeting, and your faith and hope is in vain. As Solomon would say, all is vanity. That's the point. And you should have that divide in your soul. Remember, like Hebrews 12, all the way to the bone and marrow, that's what the Word of God does. It cuts right to the point, and there's no escape. And that's the beauty of the Word of God. There is no escape. That's what you want, because the truth sets you free. That's the whole point. You want that thing. You don't want that wishy-washy thing, the thing that sort of accommodates your human flesh. You don't want that. That's from the world. That's religion from the world. That's the one that appeals to the human flesh that's disgusting. And because it's not with him, guess what? Even if it's really close, it looks a lot the same, it's against him. Because he said, you're either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no sort of kind of getting there. You're with me or you're against me. That's it. So, back to the point. Solomon's life is the context for the book of Ecclesiastes. But we mustn't end that strategy, in other words, understanding that, prematurely with Solomon's life only. Your life, as well as my own, has context. And you might have experiments. I mean, God's not going to ask you to write a book as part of, in addition to the Holy Bible, but your life has context. I'm sure anybody here want to raise their hand and say they haven't experimented against the Word of God, haven't put the, the Word of God to the test, who says, who's going to raise their hand and say that? We've all got a bazillion experiments we've done, right? And without fail, he always wins. Without fail, he always wins. So your life, though, nonetheless, may not look exactly like Solomon's, but it has context. What do I mean by that? What I mean to say is that the Word of God teaches us that we all have a unique purpose on earth. In other words, if your life has a unique context, then your life has a unique purpose. Because your life is no your life is different than anybody else who's ever lived. And he's left you here, not by mistake. So your life has unique purpose on earth. Each of us has, according to the word of God, been wonderfully made according to Holy Scripture. Go to Psalm 139 verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. You should be encouraged by this. This is perfect time for you all to be encouraged 
to know that the holy God of the universe, who knows you by name, knew you by name before you were even formed in your mom's womb, created you wonderfully, made you wonderfully, so says he. That gives you a certain context right from the womb, doesn't it? Knowing that you were born for a context that was now called your life gives you purpose, uh, gives you unique purpose. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see how personal it is with him? Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I want to give you a little context up here on the board. The sum of God's thoughts. How vast are the sum of God's thoughts? Up here on the board, this is godly wisdom. The sum of his thoughts, you see? Take all his thoughts, which is impossible for us, but you get the picture. Take all of his thoughts, mash them together, you get wisdom. This is godly wisdom. The more knowledge we have, the larger the sum for us. We gain knowledge by studying the Word of God. Speculation is tantamount to invention, which is evil. Speculation against said wisdom is evil. Now, excuse me, I want you to concentrate. So what the Spirit's saying here is that your life has context. Okay? And there's a certain wisdom that you can have about that context. We saw Solomon's wisdom. At the end of it, he said, my life had a certain context. I did all these experiments. This is what I learned. Could you not say that to yourself? And that's why the older you get, the more wisdom you have. Because you have more context. You understand. And that's why usually, usually you have a greater purpose the older you get. Which is usually why you end up laying down your life, increasingly so, for others, the older you get. Because you realize that that's the purpose. Just like Jesus said all along. He didn't leave you here so you could gather unto yourself. Isn't that what Solomon just said? What are these toils all about anyways? He didn't leave you here so you could gather unto yourself. He left you here to do his work. So that you could even lay down your life for others. How's that for purpose? But it takes us a long time because we're stubborn, we're self-absorbed, we're selfish. You know, when we're young, it's like me, 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 me. I mean, we're born that way, right? It's all me, 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 me. Give me some milk, give me some food, change my diaper, me, me, me. Or else I'm just going to cry, right? The Spirit's saying that your life has context, which is tantamount to saying it has purpose. And the most dangerous thing you can do when you sit down to ponder it is to do so in the absence of godly wisdom. That's the most dangerous thing you can do for yourself, is to sit down to ponder your own life and the context of it and the purpose of it 
in the absence of godly wisdom. Because the world's going to hand you a platter and says, hey, this is what your purpose is. I mean, don't we do that to our poor children in grade school even? Your purpose, young man, is to be a CEO. Your purpose, young woman, is to be beautiful. And if you're neither one of these things, you're a loser. I know it's not that harsh. People are like, geez, where did you go to school? (laughs) But to do this, to, to contemplate your life in the absence of godly wisdom is extremely dangerous. Here's an analogy. Would any of you wager every last cent to your name in the stock market right now, presuming you're not a professional investor, which I'm pretty sure nobody in here is, would you sell everything you've got and wager it, plop it all into, say, an E-Trade account, and then take your stab at increasing your wealth? Why not? Because you lack wisdom to make wise investments. You lack the wisdom to do it. You'd be merely speculating. You'd be merely speculating as to which stocks you think might give you a nice return on investment. But how would you choose? Would you just say, oh, I like the the ticker. I like the way that ticker looks. I'm going to choose that one. Is that how you would choose? Does that sound like wise or wisdom? It's foolishness. And yet, listen up. Some of you do just that with the most precious thing you've got, your life. Too many people speculate in the absence of wisdom. Too many people speculate in the absence of wisdom. Your life has context, but in order to enjoy it, you've got to have the word of truth in you. And this is what the psalmist wrote about. Uh, You're still in Psalm 139, right? Okay, verse 17. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Again, up here on the board, the sum of God's thoughts. This is godly wisdom. The more knowledge we have of those thoughts, the larger the sum in us. We gain knowledge by studying the word of God. Speculation is tantamount to invention, which is evil. As far as you're concerned, if you're going to speculate about your life, you wouldn't do it in the stock market. Why in the heck would you do it for your life, with your life? Why would you speculate that way? It's the most valuable thing you've got. And yet too many people do just that. Godly wisdom warns us against such speculation. You know, it's funny because the older I get, the more I realize that people are just blowhards that like to hear themselves speak. The older I get, the more I realize. I know that sounds cynical, um, but I believe it's true. Most people are just blowhards. They just like to hear themselves speak. I mean, if you don't believe that, doesn't it even make logical sense? Ask yourself one simple question. How many people do you know that seriously study the Word of God? 
seriously. I'm not talking about people who say, oh, yeah, I read my Bible. No, no, not that person. I mean the one who actually seriously studies the Word of God. How many people do you know that do that? You probably have a, high, a super high concentration listening to my voice right now. But this isn't the norm. How many people do you know, of all the people you know, seriously, I mean sit down with all humility and seriously study the Word of God? I mean, I could close my case right there without even having to dig any further. The point is that if the Word of God is the source of all true wisdom, and yet hardly anyone actually studies it diligently, and with humility, I might add, it's literally impossible for those people to understand the point on the board. In other words, they're just speculators. They're inventors. They say, my life has purpose. Oh, yeah, how do you know? I invented it. I didn't like what I learned. Maybe I'm wise. Maybe I'm wise by world standards. I didn't like what my father told me. I didn't like what my mother told me. Uh, I didn't like what my teachers told me, so I reinvented myself. I'm a self-made man. I'm going to speculate about my purpose in complete absence of God's purpose for you. Last time I checked, he created us. We didn't create ourselves. A person who doesn't know the Bible and yet spouts off at the mouth is a person you need to avoid listening to. That's why even within our own congregation, I've warned time and time again, do not speculate in any sense of the word. Don't speculate. Here's some advice. If it's not clearly stated in the Bible... Okay? If it's not clearly stated in the Bible, raise your hand if you've got this entire thing memorized. Okay, here's my advice. You ready? If you don't have this whole thing memorized, which is a stupid thing to say, right? Then you could spend your life in a thousand more, maybe not a thousand, maybe you're not that slow, ten more memorizing this thing. I would still argue you didn't have all of God's thoughts from just this book. Why in the world, if there's that much data in the Bible, if there's that much information, knowledge to be had in the Bible, why would you be looking in the gray areas? Why would you be looking for opportunities to speculate when there's that much work to be done just learning what's actually clearly stated? Do you follow my, you get my train? Like, why would you spend any time outside of this then? Arrogance? I don't know. I guess. Arrogance, right? Because as soon as you depart from this, this is what the Spirit's saying. As soon as you depart from this, you're speculating. That's the point. And as soon as you speculate, you've gone off course. This gives you context. This gives you purpose. Nobody or nothing else can. You think, you think because you're a hot shot at something in this world, a sport, making money, looking good. You think because you're a hot shot, that gives you purpose? You're a fool. You're a fool. That stuff doesn't matter at all, according to the Word of God. But see, you don't know any better because you don't study the Word of God. And sadly, sadly, there's a lot of people who are, and I'm not saying this to be a brimming, you know, fire and brimstone preacher right now, but there are a lot of people who went that route who are suffering in hell right now. You follow? How did that pay off? 
How did all that speculation about your purpose in life pay off? How did the, how'd that go for you, Chappie? Right? How'd that go? Do not speculate. If it's clearly stated in the Bible, do not subscribe to invented theories, no matter who the source might be. This is precisely why I ask you not even to take my words at face value. Don't, but rather let them do their intended job, which is to lead you to green pastures. That's my job. I'm not holy writ. It's not my book, it's Christ's book. It's his mind. My job is to lead you. There's a difference between me leading you and me trying to feed you a bunch of speculation about this or that. This is why whenever someone tries to tell me about eschatological events, that means like future events, this kind of a thing, like the rapture of the church or the, you know, this is my favorite nowadays. Oh, oh, definitely. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, definitely. We are definitely living in the end times. I roll my eyes, literally, I roll my eyes and say, who do you think you are? Do you know that every generation has said that? Every time there was a slew of earthquakes, oh, it's the end times. Every time there was a plague, oh, it's the end times. Thousands of years, every generation, oh, it's, it's definitely the end times. Stop. That's speculation. Does it say it's the end times? No, it says just the opposite. It says stop worrying about that stuff. Jesus Christ, I don't even know. I don't know when it's I don't, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know right now when it's coming. I mean, it does now, but you know, what I'm saying. you know what I'm saying, right? Do I need to explain that? Roll your eyes. That's speculation. It's foolishness. Could such things be true? I mean, could we be in the end times? Yeah. But the Bible doesn't disclose it. So, that fails the very first qualifying test of being clearly stated in Holy Scripture. In any case, the point on the board, the sum of God's thoughts, this is godly wisdom. The more knowledge we have, the larger the sum. We gain knowledge by studying the Word of God. Speculation is tantamount to invention, which is evil. Now, when you understand what the Spirit has taught you your life has context. Okay, now let me lead you one step further. Why all this this evening on this topic? Because context and purpose go together. Godly wisdom gives your life context. We just learned that. When you discover this context for yourself, you realize that God has a purpose for you. When you understand that your life has context and it's unique, you understand that God has a purpose for you. And you have a joy set before you, regardless of circumstances, which is a tremendous blessing. That's the whole point. You get blessed out when you understand the context of your life, that you have a unique purpose, not just a purpose, but a unique purpose in time. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Philippians 4, 4-13. Is there anything sweeter first thing in the morning to get out of bed and know that you have a purpose in life? Is there anything sweeter than that? We read about this last time. Go to 1 Corinthians 9, 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24.
1 Corinthians 9, 24. It's wonderful to have purpose. But to have purpose, you've got to have context. And to have context, you've got to have knowledge. You see? You've got to have that wisdom. Because the sum of it is God's thoughts. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. In other words, run to win. You go this way once. Life is short. Run it to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I do not so. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, without purpose. I'm not going to run in circles. I'm not going to box, you know, into the air like a moron. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. As the Spirit encouraged us last time, find your purpose. Go to Philippians 4.4. 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. I mean, your purpose is grounded and rooted in Christ Jesus. Right? It comes alive, it's activated, it's animated when you learn the Word of God. Philippians 4.4. 4. It does not happen in the absence of the Word of God. That's the point the Spirit's making. 4.4. 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. But you had no opportunity, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How's that for life context? Whatever situation I am to be content. Some of you just need to accept that as your life context uh, primitively, right? Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, the point on the board, though, context and purpose. Godly wisdom gives your life context. When you discover this context for yourself, you realize that God has a purpose for you. You have a joy set before you regardless of circumstances, which is a tremendous blessing. So do yourself a favor and make this personal. Don't just say, hey, good for, you know, give Solomon the golf clap. Hey, good for Solomon, you know, he did all those things. No, how about you? How about all your experimentation? How about all your learning? How about all your studying the Word of God? How about you finding out what the context is for your life? You've been wonderfully made. That's what the Bible says. God's never made one mistake in his entire existence. And he made you. And he knew about you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. 
Make it personal, because it really is that personal. All right, we just spent more than the first half of our message on perspective on wisdom itself. All right, with that said, keep all that in mind, though, as we consult our primary wisdom book. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, verse 1. So keep all of that in mind. We're getting back to our primary course of study now. So what that really translates, I mean, the net net really is, hey, look, when we read Proverbs 17, we should be like all over it. What can I glean from this thing? Like, what, what can I learn? What's the Spirit trying to say to me? I want context for my life. If, if, if the context is, you know, for the first 51 years of my life, I've been a jackass, I'd say, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. That's what love does, right? Have it become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Truth sets us free. Just tell me the truth. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Obviously, the temptation here, as we've looked at several times already, is the love of money, or more practically speaking, uh, diverting, or generally speaking, diverting our affections from the Lord Jesus Christ to something of fleshly value. I mean, honestly, does money really have any, you know, quote, spiritual value? No. Not really. It's just an instrument. It's a tool. God might give you a boatload of it at one point in your life, but... It shouldn't matter if you have a boatload, if you have a, th- a thimble full of it. It, doesn't, it shouldn't matter. That's the whole point. You just look at that as like some kind of instrument that he wants you to use, to exercise. To, I mean, if you're in America, you've got a boatload of it, whether you realize it or not. But anyways, in America, this is constant temptation in an area of sin. Go to James 1, verse 12. James 1, verse 12. I mean, I don't think I... No, I don't have this in my... Uh, notes, but um, folks that chase after wealth, they, they suffer shipwreck, what the Bible calls shipwreck even. James 1, verse 12. Here's our encouragement, right? We live in America. That's part of all of our, that's our common context, right? We all live in America. We have certain temptations. We're a rich country. James 1, 12. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Is it a trial to be wealthy? What do you think? I mean, obviously, we've all failed the test, so it must be a trial. (laughs) We've all failed at some point. So I guess living in America really is a trial of, or that concerns prosperity and money even. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So don't try to blame God. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I love this. We spent some time on this on Sunday up here on the board. Remember this? By his own desire. Don't blame others for your sins. Come on. Let's not, don't even go there. Don't blame other people for your choices, for your sins. Don't say, oh, that person tempted me and I was totally helpless. The fact is, temptation only exists because you are temptable. 
because you are temptable, as the Bible says, by your own desire. It doesn't say by someone else's desire. They might have a desire too, and they might mix badly. But that's not the point. The point is you have your own desire. You can make your own decisions. The fact is you sin because you want to. I mean, who wants to raise a hand? Right, a lot of non-raising hands tonight. Who wants to raise a hand and say, you know, you've never willingly disobeyed a direct command of God? You knew it was wrong, and what did you do? You literally did it anyways. Right? God might even be going, hey, I mean, you know this is wrong, right? Yep. Yep, I'm going to do it anyways. Woo! Right? Next day, you got your head hung over the porcelain bowl, praying to the porcelain gods, right? I'm, I'm being silly. There's no such thing as porcelain gods. Scott, don't, don't evangelize with that. I'm just kidding. Right? You reap what you sow. Guaranteed. But just, just take responsibility. You sin because you want to. Okay. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire... Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is the sad part about sin that's inevitable. It brings forth death. Up here on the board. The vector, the direction, if you would, of sin, where sin takes you, is always death. The direction of it is always death. It's always back towards the slave market of sin. It's always ejecting yourself from the sphere of God experientially back into the sphere of sin and spiritual death. So again, the vector of sin is always death, regardless of the sense in which we ponder it. For example, sin in the garden resulted in spiritual and physical death. Sin for a believer can result in physical death, and sin for a believer can result in degradation of fellowship with God. In other words, we experience the throes of spiritual death. So, as we looked at I think it was honest. I think it was 80 parts, the deceitfulness of sin. We also looked at it on Sunday, and we personified it, understanding that sin is deceitful up here on the board, and that if we personify it, we look at it as having even an end goal. The end goal of sin is to take you away from the word of truth. Therefore, anything or anyone that does that to you ought to be considered a friend of sin. Anything or anyone that takes you away from the word of truth ought to be considered a friend of sin. Sin is powerless for as long as you're steadfast in the faith. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 2 Corinthians 1, 24, Galatians 5, 1, Ephesians 6, 13. Now, given the biblical fact also that we reap what we sow, the Spirit gave us this wisdom up here on the board. Do yourself a favor then, and avoid the guaranteed suffering that comes with sin by avoiding the cause of it in the first place, namely sin. Just stay away from it. Just It's guaranteed. If you don't like you know, suffering, then stay away from sin. It's that simple. You will suffer. And you might say, I'm not suffering at all. I've been doing this thing for years, and I don't have any. Oh, yes, you will. Ask some of the older people in here who beat up their bodies, who were, uh, I don't know, promiscuous even, who were, uh, you know, addicts in different ways, and who were this kind of thing and that kind of thing. Ask them if it caught up with them eventually. 
if they were, if they were pathological liars. Ask them if it catches up with them. It catches up with you eventually. It always catches up with you. It always catches up with you. You understand? God says it, you reap what you sow. I'm not trying to put the scare. And some people are like, oh, no, I did that thing, and I, I, don't, I can't identify whether or not I paid for it yet. Don't get like that. It's not about scaring you into stuff you did from before. If you've confessed it and you've repented from it, you leave that up to God. You leave it up to God. Some of us have physical wounds. That's maybe what I'm talking about even. Physical or emotional scarring because of some of the choices we've made. That's all I'm saying, right? And that validates the word of God. So do yourself a favor and avoid all that, okay? Verse 15, again, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And what does 16 say then? Then don't be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, brothers, right? Do not be deceived. Don't let that thing, sin, deceive you in, into thinking you can, what, outwit God? Uh, circumvent what's absolute truth in the Word of God? It just doesn't work. Okay, so that's what the Spirit had to say about Proverbs 17.1. Go back to Proverbs 17.1. We're going to move on here quickly. <clears throat> Hopefully you still have your bookmark there. We're going to keep going back there. So that's what he said about Proverbs 17.1. Again, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Again, up here on the board, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to where you just came from, in other words. And then Ephesians 6.13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to what? Stand firm. Okay. So when it comes to temptation, we've got a lot to think about, as it's a form of seduction. So I'm going to be like, man, it's like it sneaks up on me. Before I know it, I'm doing it again. It's cause it's, that's why the, the Bible calls it out as a form of seduction. Right? It's a, little, it's a dance. Right? It's a little dance that we all play. And it's grotesque. It's not a slap in the face, by the way, this seduction. For that would be immediately, that would immediately turn us cold against it. Right? Anything that comes up to you and slaps you upside the head and says, hey, I'm just going to... I'm going to deliver on that guaranteed end thing right now. Psh! You're going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. If it did that, you'd never sin. You, you know what I'm getting at? If you get the, the penalty first type thing. No, it seduces you, right? It, it's, it's, it's like a warm bed with a bunch of empty promises. That's the seductiveness of sin. A warm bed made with a bunch of empty promises. And that's why the Bible speaks of the adulteress, because that's exactly the same thing. A warm bed with a bunch of empty promises. So here's a conclusion from Sunday's message up here on the board. The full armor of God. Sin cannot seduce us if we're so in love with Jesus Christ that no one and no thing can tempt us away from him. That's the end goal of studying the word of God of doing what you're doing right now, is to fall head over heels in love with your true husband. That's the idea. Capital H, Christ. He's the one 
who's marrying you, after all. If you're so in love with him, any seducer that comes by, get away from me, scuzz. Get away from me, you degraded... I can't even say it, because I'll get, start getting mouthy, right? Just get away from me. You're gross to me. But sin says, just focus on what you want, right? Not what your capital H husband wants for you. You just focus on what you want. Don't worry about what Jesus, your husband, wants for you. You just worry about what you want. You run out there and you do whatever you want. You cheat on him sideways, up, down, sideways. You adulterate on him. You do whatever you want. You be the little hoe. That's sin. Anybody want to be a hoe for sin? <laughs> What's the matter? Seriously. Anybody want to be a hoe for sin? I don't. You want to be dominated by sin? Your husband, Jesus Christ, says you ought to focus on others, lest you become selfish and fall into the trappings of sin. Up here in the board, temptation. Sin tempts us to focus on us, not others. That is, to love ourselves more than others. This is opposite of what the Bible teaches us. All right, let's press on. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The net-net of our studies on that verse was up here on the board in terms of privileges. You know what? Guess what? You're entitled to nothing. What did we learn? He used blood relatives as our example said, God is not a God of partiality. He doesn't give favor to any man. So what do we do then? Well, we fail that when, often when it comes to our families. We think we're entitled to stuff because we're blood relatives with others. You're not entitled to anything unless God decides to give it to you. All right, let's keep on reading. Verse 2 again. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Verse 3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. See, very personal. He tests your heart. He tests your heart. Do you, he asks you first thing at the, at the beginning of this message, do you understand the context of your life? Do you understand the purpose of your life? He tests your hearts. He already knows, by the way, right? And remember, I gave you this. Um, can you guys see that? Yeah, you see that black, crumbly stuff on the top? That's called slag or dross, right? And they scrape it off. They heat up the metal. The metal melts, and the impurities come to the top, and they scrape it off, and that's how they purify. What's left is purer than it was before. And that's the analogy in the Bible. I'm going to heat you up. I'm going to put you under the fire so that the impurities sort of percolate up and, and I, we can scrape them off. If you're humble, we can, we, we'll scrape them right off. We'll do this thing together. You'll learn the Word of God. I'll show you a few things about yourself. 
You're like, ooh, that is dross. That's garbage, right? Yeah, let's scrape it off. Let's put you under a little pressure, and we'll scrape it off. You say, but why do I have to have pressure? Because everybody thinks they have wonderful faith until it's under pressure. And then you realize your faith really isn't that good. Peter, remember? You will deny me three times. What? No way. What did he end up doing? Weeping. Because guess what he did? He denied him three times. Guess his faith wasn't what he thought it was, right? He literally was like, no way. I'll follow you to the end of the earth, Lord. I don't know. I don't know. Whoop. When you purify metal, part of the process is scraping the dross and the slag or the impurities off the top. Just looking at a metal in its solid form doesn't always reveal the truth about its purity. In other words, just looking at your own faith. Make it personal, right? Just looking at your own life. You can't just look at it and say, okay, I see it all. I, just by looking at it, without any pressure, without any testing, just by looking at my life, I can tell that my faith is pure. No, you, you can't do that. The Bible says, no, no, no. I've got to put you under pressure so that you see exactly where your faith is lacking. So that, that then we can, we can talk about it and scrape it off. And I'll give you more of the word of God. And you realize there's even more impurities in there. And we'll scrape that off. And that's how it goes. We're constantly put under pressure. We're put in the crucible, you see. He puts us in the crucible. He turns the heat up. We realize, oh, man, well, let's take the dross off the top. Let's take it off. I didn't even know it was there, Lord. I know. That's why I ordained this testing for you. And some of you are like, I didn't deserve any of this testing. It was completely undeserved suffering. So? So? The fact that you're whining like a little baby means that, guess what? You're not content in every circumstance. What's that say about your faith? Guess you wouldn't have known that unless, you know, you were tested, supposedly, unfairly. That you were, you know, had went, underwent undeserved suffering, which in my opinion is exceptionally rare, if whatever. Undeserved suffering. You wouldn't know that about yourself. Isn't that, some, isn't that a form of strength? To be able to stand up under undeserved suffering? When someone's wrongly, say someone comes up to you and wrongly accuses you of something heinous. How do you hold up? Can you hold up? Do you lose your marbles? Jesus never lost his marbles, and they were constantly accusing him. They said he was like in, in cahoots with the devil. That's the point. We need to be put under the, we need to be put in the crucible. That's the point. So again, all that being put under pressure, the same goes with our faith. We must be put into the fire for, for us to really know the truth about our faith up here on the board. So as we learned, and I've got to end here shortly, I'm just going to go a little over because we started a little late. <clears throat> the crucible. Faith must be tested for it to be consummated. In other words, for it to be real, for you to understand that it's real. Because often you do get put under pressure and you pass the test. And when you pass the test, you can look in the mirror and go, I passed that test. By the grace of God, I passed that test. And I have faith today that I didn't have yesterday. And now it becomes what I call consummated. 
It's real. I know it's true because it's been tested. Right? I know it's true because it's been tested. So faith must be tested for it to be consummated. In other words, while God always knows the purity of our faith, we must have it tested by fire, Allah, 1 Peter 1.7, in order to understand its purity for ourselves. Again, this is about find your purpose, find your context, understand where you're at. The beauty of testing our faith is the undeniable results. That's the beauty of being tested, that it always produces undeniable results. You can't really look in the mirror in all honesty in the presence of God and say, oh, oh yeah, I passed that test, when you know you didn't. You can't. There are undeniable results. And that's the beauty of testing our faith. God wants us to see what he says regarding our faith. Up here on the board, the result of testing by fire. The value of being tested by fire in the crucible is very much about confession. I confess. I see the dross on the top. I confess. You put me in the crucible, you turn up the heat, I see it. It's right there. There's all the ugliness right there. It's right there. There's purity in there, but there's also this other stuff that needs to be scraped out of my life. That's the value of being tested in the crucible. It's very much about confession. God already knows we need to have things pointed out to us. If we find out that our faith is all smoke and mirrors, isn't that goodness in of itself? Yeah. If we realize that our faith is really not that good, isn't that a favor that God's doing for us? Yeah, because down the line, that faith might really be tested in maybe even a more severe way. And you might hurt all the more if you think you've got it and you fail miserably. He's doing you a favor up front saying, hey, listen, it's not what you think it is. I'll give you a little test. And in humility, you accept what you see because the results are undeniable. I'll give you a little test. I'll turn up the heat. What do you see? Confess it. Homo legato. Say the same thing as I see. That's what I want from you. Just say it. What do you see? So if we find out our faith is smoke and mirrors, that's good too. Never be beaten down by the fact that your faith is weaker than you originally thought. Be grateful that God has found a way to reveal it to you. But just be humble about what you see. That's the key. Again, up here on the board, the proof of humility we must willingly go into the crucible to be tested by fire. It's never enough to say God knows the truth. We must understand the truth about ourselves fully and confess it to God in order to be truly delivered from whatever impurities still remain in us. Let's just read it one more and I have to close. Go to verse 1 again. You're still in Proverbs 17, right? Let's just read it and we'll close. Just for the sake of continuity, context, pull it together. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. Wonderful. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for gathering us together as family. We know that these messages are tough, Father, and they pick off old scabs even, and they irritate our flesh to the nines. Father, we're grateful for it. Thank you for pointing it out. You're making us stronger, this we know, from Holy Scripture. Thank you. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our homes, and then your will be done out to a world that's just in so desperate need of these things, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.